Because you see, we do want to connect to our community because we realize that there are many lives around us that need to be rebuilt. You know, this same reality existed in Nehemiah's day as we've looked at the vision that God gave Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. And then last week, we saw where the, there was a change in that focus, where it moved from the true building of the wall, that physical building, to the project of really rebuilding lives. And we're going to look at that further this morning in a message that I've entitled, Revival Continues. You see, as I start, I want us to even consider this, how in our day and time, there are various celebrations that we observe that have really lost their meaning or significance in our day and time. For example, Labor Day in the United States was established to honor and recognize the American labor movement and the works and contribution of laborers to the development and the achievements of the country. But let's be honest and acknowledge, what has it become? It's a symbolic, all right, end of summer, right? A long weekend for people to get away or time to have a barbecue and fun, right? That's what it's become. Labor Day has lost its meaning for most people. Now, before we know it, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. But we, will we really celebrate it for its intended purpose? Thanksgiving in the United States was historically a celebration of the pilgrim's successful harvest and in a way to give thanks for a good harvest season. And my guess is the majority of people will never mention the pilgrims or the harvest as you gather for Thanksgiving celebrations. Maybe in part because most of us, we don't do our own harvesting anymore, but mainly because today Thanksgiving is often simply associated with family gathers, gatherings, feastings, and football, right? And the historical context is mostly overlooked. Or what about Valentine's Day, all right? Valentine's Day was a Christian feast day. It was honoring the Saint Valentine, all right? A Christian martyr who, who, you know, who served the Lord faithfully. Now, when was the last time on Valentine's Day you mentioned Saint Valentine? Most of you maybe even never, right? Over time, it's just simply been transformed into a commercialized celebration of romantic love where people are pressured to spend money to show their love, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Now, see, I could go on this morning because in many ways, Christmas is even has lost its meaning. For most people, it's just a time of giving gift to others. Then Easter's going to roll around, and for the majority of people, it's just a time of candy. On and on we can go talking about things that we started celebrating for specific reasons, but they lost their true significance. Or maybe we stopped even celebrating them altogether because even in Christian circles, when was the last time you heard of the celebration of Ascension Day or Pentecost? No, right? You haven't, right? Well, here in Nehemiah, we'll see that the people realized that they had lost the significance of some things and needed to get back to the historical and spiritual significance. We're going to see that they needed to get back to remembering, repenting, and rejoicing, all right? Well, first of all, we saw last week where the revival or the rebuilding of the people began as they gathered together and asked Ezra to read from the law of God. What we know as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what's also called the Torah in Jewish circles, or often even called the Pentateuch in Christian circles. Penta meaning five for the first five books of the Bible. You see, as Ezra read from the law of God, the people ended up weeping because they recognized how they had suffered as a people due, their, to, due to their rebellion against God. They weep realizing that God had given them a warning and they didn't listen, and because of that, they had suffered destruction and exile. However, Nehemiah, Ezra, and others remind the people that they didn't need to weep, but instead what they could do is look to God, who is a forgiving God, and a God who is already in the process of restoring them, and they could have joy because of God. And so Nehemiah tells the people, go home, rejoice. 
And the people go home and they rejoice, all right? They have a party as they were commanded. Now, I ended at verse 12 last week in Nehemiah 8, so let's pick up at verse 13. It said, on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. We now see as they went home to celebrate, it's the second day and the the people went home and rejoiced as commanded. But now the, the heads of their families gather back together with the spiritual leaders in order to study the words of the law more fully. Now, here is something they understand. The study of God's word is ongoing. Think of this. You should never think you know, there, uh, you know all there is to know about God's word. Amen, right? The, the people who'd stood for six hours the day before could have said, well, we've heard the law read. Now we're good to go. We don't need to know anymore, all right? But, but they needed to know more. The leaders of each family knew that. And so they gathered together to study the word of God, to study that law even further. They knew that there was no way in one reading or one teaching session that they knew everything. They knew there was more to understand and they desired to know more. And since they are listed here as the leaders of the families, we have to assume that they were wanting to learn God's word more fully because they wanted to then teach their families how, and then lead them even correctly. In fact, I wonder if our day and time, if all the heads of the families would seek a deeper understanding of God's word and then lead their families to live that out, if society would be better. All right, I think they would, right? Absolutely. I, I know individuals' lives would be better, families would be better, and society would be better if family leaders would hunger for God's Word, study God's Word, and live it out, and then teach that there in their homes. Now, look at what happens as they continue reading in verse 14. And they found in it written, in the law of the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Now, when we, what was read here, you know, when we read it, you, you probably wonder what's going on here. I mean, what is this dwelling in booths, going to get olive branches, myrtles, palms, and other leafy trees to make booths? It surely doesn't mean much to you, and obviously at this point, even to the people here in Israel, because it had truly lost its significance to them. What is being described here is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. In Jewish circles, Sukkot is what it's named, all right? This was a festival established by God that the people of Israel were to keep. We can read about it in Exodus 23 and Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. There are probably a few of you who are familiar with this feast, but most probably do not even know what it is. So I'm going to try to describe it to you briefly, all right? The Feast of Booths was meant to be a feast of remembering, remembering God's goodness. The people of Israel were to live in tents or booths for the entire week because it pointed them back to the 40 years when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness and had to live in tents. The feast was to remind the people that during those years of wandering that God had been with them, that God was patient with them, and that God had provided for them as they made their way to the promised land. It was God who provided manna for them when they were hungry. It was God who provided water from the rock when they were thirsty. It was God who protected them from their enemies and at times even giving them unexpected victories. This festival was used to help the people remember how good God had been to them. And when we read this, we read here it's important because the people needed to rebuild their remembering. The Jewish people had forgotten the goodness of God. You see, it's interesting as the people here in Nehemiah began to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This is what we're told in verse 17. 
is that from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so, right? Now, if you don't understand what that means, it means this. It means it didn't take the people of Israel long after experiencing the goodness and the provisions of God delivering them from Egypt and taking them to the promised land to forget remembering and to celebrate what God had done, right? It said they had not celebrated this festival, even though commanded by God, since the time of Joshua, right? Joshua was the one that led them in the promised land. So this has been a while since they had ever said, said, you know, celebrated this feast. Here's what happened to the people and what is so easy that can happen to us if we're not careful. They forgot that it was God who provided for them. They'd forgotten that it was God who had parted the sea. They'd forgotten that it was God who'd provided the manna. They had forgotten that God had caused the walls of Jericho to fall. They had forgotten that God had given them victory over more powerful enemies. They had forgotten that God had done all these things and began thinking that they themselves was their source of strength. Now, let me ask you, all right, who has provided all that you have? All right, now we're in a church setting, so what do we say? God, right? We do that. But I wonder if inside you, all right, if there's not a feeling that says that you are the one that's provided the things that you have. All right, especially here in America, all right, we have this inherent belief that we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, right? And if you don't know what that means, it basically means nothing good happens unless you make it happen yourself, right? That's our feeling. Here's what that philosophy does. It causes us to forget that God is the one who ultimately provides. We begin to think, I have what I have because I worked hard and I worked a lot of overtime to get my stuff. God didn't do that, I did. All right, I'm the one who worked through the tough times and persevered to get the promotion and the job. I've done that, not God. I'm the one who did all that sweating to make my house what it is. I'm the one who tilled the soil, pulled the weeds so that my garden would produce the bounty it did. I'm the one who made the wise investments that caused my portfolio to grow. I'm the one who's made me successful, not God. And I'm not going to say that hard work and determination are not important because they're good traits to have. And I would encourage any of you to work hard and have determination. I believe everyone should do that. But you should never believe that what you achieved is accomplished without the hand of God. Nothing in reality, nothing is in your control. A wise man once told me this. He says, when things are going well, you're not as good as you think. And when things are going bad, you're not as bad as you think. His point is this, all right? There are so many things that are out of your control that play into how life is going for you, all right? In a booming economy, hear me. In a booming economy, it's easy for businesses to thrive even if the one in charge is a bad manager. Right? When the economy is struggling, it it can be hard, all right? Even for a a, a business to succeed, even if the one managing is good. Right? There's so much out of control. In fact, ask any farmer. It's harvest time, right? Ask any farmer here at harvest time if the size of the harvest is really under his or her control. A farmer who really knows will say no. Farmers understand that in many ways the harvest is determined by things out of their control. Farming is truly a profession that has to be undertaken by faith. I mean, yes, you have to be diligent and plant your crops properly. Yes, you have to tend to those crops as they grow. You have to do all those things and yet still know that the hard work may or may not pay off in the end. I mean, if God doesn't provide the rain, if he doesn't provide the right germination and other things, there will be no bounty of crops. Likewise, without God, hear me, working in our lives, we are all in, tr- all in trouble because he's the one that provides all that we have. All right, let's never forget the words of James 1.17. 
Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the fathers of light with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see, the nation of Israel had forgotten all that God had done for them, and therefore they had turned from God. The result, they had suffered greatly, suffered even to the point of the exile that, that we've mentioned. But now as they are experiencing a rebuilding, a, a revival, as they are turning their attention back to God, which included celebrating the Feast of Booths and remembering the goodness of God's provision, I mean, it, it, it provides you and I with a challenge that you and I would practice remembering God's goodness regularly. I, I want to encourage you to do something, all right? Put things into your life that help you remember God's goodness on a regular basis. Even this, it is a good thing to pray for every meal, thanking God for his provision. I mean, I often pray at meals and, and I'll say some of the same stuff, right? Because I'm just praying for my meal, not trying to catch up on my prayer life. I often say, God, I know that all that we have has been provided by you. You see, I don't ever want to forget that God is the one provided. And if I said that prayer at every meal, that would be okay because I can know at every prayer, God, I know that all that we have, you have provided, I know that's true. And it reminds me, God, I want to give you thanks. You see, as Thanksgiving approaches, be sure to include a time of thanks to God. Don't just eat your meal. Don't just watch your football. Just don't gather with family. Make sure you say, God, thank you for all that we have. As Christmas comes around, put something into your celebration to make sure that you thank God for the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. When Easter comes, thank God for the gift of salvation as well. But really, listen, I'm going to say to you, daily remember God's goodness. Do what it says in Psalm 9-1. I will give thanks to the Lord with, look at this, my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. We truly need to make the practice of giving thanks to God a regular part of our lives. The people here in Nehemiah 8, as they were rebuilding their lives, recognized the need to remember God's goodness and celebrated the Feast of Booths once again as God had commanded. Now, here's what is interesting. It was what comes out of this remembering. They remember the goodness of God and as revival is happening with the people, there came this natural flow of understanding this, that the people needed to rebuild their repenting. Okay? Think about that. They remember the goodness of God, and as they remember that, now they realize we got some things we need to repent of. Look at what happens now as we turn to chapter 9, verse 1. It says, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their foreheads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day, for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenana, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord, their God. You see, after the people had taken time to celebrate, remembering God's goodness, the next thing we see is they come back together again. And this is a time of fasting, wearing sackcloth and earth on their heads. Now, the picture that's painted here is one that we are unfamiliar with in our day again, because the wearing of sackcloth and having earth on our heads is something that's foreign to us. But the sackcloth in Nehemiah's day would have been similar to our burlap. Any of y'all have any burlap? I see a few hands. And I bet why most people today who have burlap are familiar with it because they use it to decorate their house. They incorporate it in their decor, right? Now, I dealt with burlap a lot when I was a kid because we raised peppers to earn extra money and we picked our peppers to take them to market. We would dump them in burlap sacks and take those burlap sacks to the market and we'd dump them out of those burlap sacks so we could get our money, all right? Y'all never did any of that? 
Right. Some of you, right? Some of you might be familiar with burlap sacks too, because I think still some bulk potatoes come in burlap sacks, all right? But for those of you who know what burlap is, think about having an outfit made of burlap. Some of you'd say, hard pass on my part, all right? So for those who don't relate, think about this. Think about wearing the most itchy, uncomfortable outfit you've ever had. I've seen a few sweaters that fit in that category, have you not, right? We don't like the thought of wearing something that's itchy and scratchy and uncomfortable, right? But here in Nehemiah 9, the people come dressed basically in burlap. Why? Because the people are coming with repentant hearts. Okay? They're coming wearing the sackcloth that represented that the people were uncomfortable in their sin. We could say they were owning their sin, recognizing their failure before God and acknowledging their need and their desire to change. As the people would be ready to change from their uncomfortable garments, they were expressing their desire to change from their sin. You see, as one remembers the goodness of God, it has a way of revealing one's own shortcomings. One realizes that there are things in their life that needs to change in order to live up to the standards of a holy God. This recognition of unworthiness is also why the people put earth on their heads. The physical dirtiness was to represent the way they saw themselves. Pastor Eric Mason stated that the message that people were proclaiming was this. I'm a mess and I'm dirty, but I wish I had some help. I'm uncomfortable because I acknowledge that sin exists in my life. In other words, they were making that declaration before God and seeking for things to change. You know, the idea of repentance may be new to some because we live in a world that wants to paint a picture of comfortable Christianity. In fact, many preachers want to just proclaim the love of God, but fail to talk about the holiness of God that requires sin to be punished. If you are really comfortable in your Christianity, let me say this, maybe better check and see if, if it's authentic because genuine Christianity at times will have you in sackcloth and earth. Maybe not literally, but figuratively. In fact, if you never have moments when you feel bad about your sin, then you will never fully experience the joy that God wants to give you. All right, that's why I'm gonna say to you this. Let repenting be familiar in your Christian walk. If we were to look back at verse two and three, we'll see where the people confess their sins individually and also corporately because it said they confess the sins of their fathers. Yes, we need to confess our individual sins, but there are even times as a body collectively, we need to confess our sins, confess the times when we as a people have not failed to follow or we have failed to follow God. We should make note that the word here translated confession in the Hebrew is the word yede and it has various meanings. First, it can mean to throw or to hurl. Some have suggested that this is saying, listen, that they're throwing their sins to God, saying, God, take this away from me. I can see that, right? However, the other meaning is to declare or to make an admission of something. In this case, it's when one declares and admits that what they have done is wrong. In either case, it's the recognition that there is something in one's life that's not pleasing to God and needs to go. Now, understanding what confession is, let's not overlook that it said the people read from the book of the law for a quarter of a day. And then for another quarter of a day, they confessed and worshiped. You know what that shows us? That repentance and confession is not just a small part of what we do as believers. It is actually a fairly important part of what we do. You see, confession is more. Confession is more than just uttering up a quick prayer to God and say, God, I'm sorry. Right? You can't do that and it's over. Confession is much more than that. It's taking the time to truly lay your sin before God, admit you're wrong, and seek to be cleansed and to be made new from that sin. 
You see, we should not be surprised at the importance of confession and repentance because John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus, looked at the people and said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance in Luke 3, 8. And then Jesus said in Matthew 4, he said, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So clearly we need to let repenting be familiar in our Christian walk. It is something that we should do regularly. But this is where we do need a little warning. If we stop there, the rebuilding is not complete. Maybe, maybe someone will say, well, once repentance happens, well, surely now revival will break out in the world, right? That's all we need. Everybody, if everybody confesses their sin, it's all good. But folks, listen, if we stop, there's something very important missing. All right, think about baking a cake, okay? Anybody like to bake a cake? Anybody want to bake me a cake? I'll take it, all right? If you take the time to measure out all the ingredients perfectly, to mix everything in the right order and, and, and to put it in the, the right way together and pour it evenly in the pan, even put it in the oven at the perfect temperature and the perfect timing, and uh, you begin to smell the aroma in the air with anticipating of eating it, are you finished? No. If you stop right there, you're missing something very important. You know what that is? Setting the timer and taking it out on time, right? If you miss that important step, you know what you end up with? A burnt lump of something, but you don't end up with cake, right? Right? No cake you can enjoy. Likewise, let me say this. If we stop with repentance, we've missed an important step. What we might, must not forget is what we see next here in Nehemiah 9 is that the people needed to rebuild their rejoicing in God's righteousness, you see, at the end of verse four, the people are confessing and worshiping and cry out with a loud voice to God. In fact, it sounds a little like what happened in chapter eight, verse nine, when there the people heard the word of God and they began to weep. But look at what we read next in chapter nine, verse five. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Benai, Hashem, why do they put all these names in there, right? Hashemniah, Sherebiah, Hadiah, Shabaniah, and Pathahiah said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You see, here we see the Levites look at the people, all right, who are repenting. I mean, they're probably crying. I'm sure a lot of stuff going on and begin to redirect their focus. As the people are repenting, let me ask you this question. When they're repenting, who are they focused on? Say it, Mike, louder. Themselves, right? Themselves, right? They're recognizing their sin. They are looking inwardly, trying to deal with their failure to live for God. Now, if I've stated, that's important. So I'm not contradicting that. However, it needs to be clear that there's another step that we must move to. And the Levites pointed the people in the right direction when they said, stand up and bless the Lord. See, what the Levites are trying to do is help pointing the people to turn their attention to God, who is the one who can deal with their sin, not only deal with it, who can heal them from their sin. See, we need this reminder because if we're not careful, you can get to the place where you only focus on your sin. There are some people who believe that they are holy or humble because they dwell on their sin, pointing out their flaws to others. You know why people saying, oh, I, you know, I got so many wrong things. I, I got so many flaws in my life, all right? So, some people believe this makes them more spiritual when actually it is just a form of pride as they are becoming prideful for being humble. You know what I'm talking about, right? You caught that. Some of you did. You're laughing. Dwelling on their sin and continuing confessing for some could be false humility. 
I say that because as we will see here in a few moments, you should be more than your sin. All right, so if you let sin define you, even in the sense of always acknowledging your sinfulness, then it can be dangerous to your spiritual life. Also dwelling on your sin too much can cause you to be depressed. You can even get depressed to the point of despair, and that's surely not God's desire. Last week, we even saw that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so as we look at this point of the people needing to rebuild their rejoicing in God's righteousness, we need to know as one repents, you need to look to God for he is the one who gives you a reason to rejoice. Look at verse six. You are the Lord, you alone. All right, get that? You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all them and the host of heaven worships you. Think about what the Levites are wanting the people to see. They're wanting the people to see the greatness of God. Notice they proclaim, you are the Lord, you alone. In other words, God, you're unique. There's none like you. See, he is the one true God, the God who even made the heavens and all things. Beyond that, he is the one who preserves all things. God is so great, the host of heavens worship him. There's no doubt the Levites wanted the people to turn their eyes off their sin and self and turn and look at God and his greatness. Now, why is this important? All right. When you see the greatness of God, any other thing you have been looking at looks a lot smaller. If in your life you're facing what you believe to be a mountain that's too hard to climb, when you view that mountain in light of God, it's really nothing because God made that actual mountain or the actual mountains. And so whatever is a mountain to you is not that hard for God. Even to God is nothing more than a little goose bump. You got it? So let's apply that to any sin you have to confess. Remember, the people have been confessing their sin and crying out about their failures. So why does the Levite encourage the people to turn their attention to God? Because God is the answer to our sins. You might look at the sin in your life as a, a big thing to overcome. And listen, maybe from a human perspective, it is a big thing to overcome. But I'm going to tell you this, but your sin is not too hard for God to overcome. In fact, God has already taken care of your sin through the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21? Paul reminded us that. He said, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the what? See, maybe we forget at times that what God did through Jesus Christ is he took our sins, all right, and he placed them on Jesus. And then Jesus took those to the cross to die to pay the price for our sins. He wasn't dying for his sin because he was perfect. Indeed, Jesus bore the weight of our sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might not be able to overcome our sin, but Jesus took all of our sin to the cross. Because of what Jesus did is why John proclaimed this in his letter in 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, look at this, cleanses us from what? all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right. You notice I pause because I don't want you to overlook the word all that appears twice in the verses. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin if we confess our sin to God. He will forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God can handle whatever sin is present in your life. Tell me, is that worth rejoicing over? Yes. 
Yes, absolutely. And in case you think this doesn't apply to you and maybe God can forgive others, but not you, let's remember that God truly has offered forgiveness to all who will by faith receive it through Jesus Christ, okay? In fact, let me read a few more verses here in Nehemiah 9. Verse seven says, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusites, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. You see, when the Levites are asking the people to remember here, it's how God had worked in the life of the people. It started when God chose Abram. Not because Abram was a perfect man, but because he exercised faith in God. And God used Abram to bless the world. Through Abram came the Jewish nation, through whom ultimately came Jesus, the hope of the world. God had made us to, to a promise to Abram, and he kept it. And through the years, he has renewed his covenant. All right? He renewed it with Moses and others. He, he, he proved to be faithful over and over again. And because of God's faithfulness through the years, at the end of verse 8, the Levites proclaimed to God, you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Now, is that an important and powerful statement? All right, some of you hesitated, almost say yes. You see, God had kept his promise because he is righteous. And a word we don't use much today that we're gonna hear maybe in the coming weeks is the word covenant. And in the Bible, covenant is a significant concept that represents a sacred agreement or relationship between God and his people. A covenant outlined God's promises expectations and blessings for his people. God, hear me, always keeps his covenant. Now that's important for us as people because it tells us that we can trust God and we can take him at his word. The Levites could tell the people to turn from confessing and turn to rejoicing because they could trust in God to forgive and restore them. This concept of God making covenants and keeping them becomes really important to us we read the words of Jesus as recorded by Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. 25. He said, in the same way also we took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. See, as Jesus was celebrating the Passover meal, establishing what we now call the Lord's Supper, Jesus said that a new covenant was being established. A new promise that God was going to, going to come through, all right, and that promise was going to come through the blood of Jesus. Now, what is this new covenant? Let me read it to you from Hebrews 8. For he finds faults with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, for the least to them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquity. And I will what? Remember their sins no more. All right. Read that last verse again. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Listen, what a great promise from God. 
the promise to be merciful and not to remember the people's sins anymore. That is what God offers to us through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of our sins, not by our righteousness, but through his and a relationship with God restored forevermore. See, what those who know Jesus should understand is this, right? You should rejoice over God's righteousness that he offers through faith in Jesus. See, Paul said as much in Romans 5.11, and he wrote, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Every one of us has hope today because God has offered us forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. And when you understand God's forgiveness and receive God's forgiveness, you gain a reason to truly rejoice. And every Baptist, even though you're not a Pentecostal, should shout, hallelujah, right? Now, I know I need to close, so let's consider what all this means. Here at this point in Nehemiah, lives, not walls, are being rebuilt. God is reviving people. He's bringing life to where life did not exist. Lives like yours and mine. I personally have a desire for people to experience this rebuilding or revival in their lives today. For some of you, it's you. My prayer today is that you would be revived. Now, if that's going to happen, some of you need to remember the goodness of God. You have forgotten. Maybe the difficult moments of your life has made the goodness of God hard for you to see, or maybe even doubt him. But I would challenge you to look back through the years and see how God has been there and see how God has worked. God is a good God and he cares for you. All that you might need to do is to experience a revival in your life is look back and remember the goodness of God again. That's what you need to do. And maybe that'll flood your soul and revival might come just by remembering the goodness of God. Now, others for you, it is sin that is stifling your life. It is sin that has stolen life from you. The answer for you today, it's repenting. I, I, I'm, I'm in part convinced this, ready? The thing that is keeping people and churches from experiencing revival is the fact that we have lost the art of repentance. If you see repentance as something bad, I hope today that, that, that you see repentance as necessary and opens the door to you to find repentance. Life in the one true God who loves you. Repentance is not a place, though, that you stay but hear me, it is a door that opens the way to God's forgiveness. Because for anyone here today to have your life rebuilt and find a revival in your heart, you ultimately, though, you must trust God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ and in that gain a reason to rejoice. Now, I'm not sure this morning what place you're in, but here's my prayer for every person who's here this morning, that you would experience a revival in your heart. We're going to have a time of invitation. Maybe some of you today need to just take this time and remember God's goodness in your life. The altar's open if you want to even come here. And if all you need to do is say, God, thank you for your goodness. And I need to remember that because it's been a little cloudy lately. But God, you've been good. And I want to remember that today. And maybe in that moment, you'll be refreshed and find renewing just as you thank God for all that he's done. Again, there's others. Listen, you need to come and repent. Let's just, let's just say how it is. There's sin in your life and it's there and you know it. Listen, you're never going to be healed. You're never going to experience revival until you repent of that sin before a holy God. And the good news is he's ready to receive you. This altar is open for you to kneel. If you need to weep, I don't care. It's fine. I don't care what anybody else says. It doesn't matter. Come before a holy God and repent if that's what you need to do. And then the end, my prayer for all of us is that we'd be able to rejoice in God's goodness. All right? Rejoice. 
Maybe some of you, you look and say, hey, for me right now, things are going well. I mean, God has been good, and I know that. I've, I've, I've repented up. I'm good. I'm caught up on my repenting. Well, spend some time just rejoicing because your hope is still in Jesus. Never lose that joy in the Lord. Amen? Right? And maybe for some, it's for you to gain that for the first time because if you've never given your life to Jesus, today is the day. There's hope because of Jesus Christ. So we're going to go to this time of invitation. And my prayer would be today that we would see lives that are revived, lives that are rebuilt this morning because of the great God that we serve. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to this holy time in your service where we offer an invitation, I pray in these moments, Father, that you would move. I have no doubt, God, that there are lives here today that need to be rebuilt, lives that need to be revived. The reasons are different. The reasons are many. But, Father, their answer to all of them is you. So I pray in this moment, pour your spirit out. Help us to receive your goodness this morning and revive our souls, revive our hearts, revive our lives. We love you, Father. And right now, God, just give all this to you, that your spirit move. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.